We are continuing this morning in our study of the book of Titus, and we are in chapter 3. And the text this morning that we're going to focus on is the end of verses 5 and then verses 6 and 7. We read a little bit before that, again, to kind of remember the context that we are in in this chapter. And we are looking at different aspects of salvation. We were looking at that last time. And uh, so as we go through these verses, we are uh, focusing in, and uh, we're just taking small sections of this chapter to understand what are the meanings of some of these things that Paul is writing about. Remember last time we focused for a while on the, the phrase, the washing of regeneration, and we were asking what... What does that mean? And so as we're looking at these different aspects of salvation, we want to focus in and gather, uh, glean, I should say, other portions of Scripture to understand what are the meanings of these different aspects of salvation that Paul is writing about. We saw last time that God saves his people out of a condition of spiritual slavery, uh, that is, slavery to the love of sin. He saves them out of that, not by any works of righteousness which they perform, but by the washing of regeneration, which is granted to God's people by a kind and a loving God, as he grants mercy, bringing us out of the spiritual grave into spiritual life. Uh, we didn't finish verse 5. We stopped after we read the phrase, by the washing of regeneration. And you notice right after Paul writes concerning the washing of regeneration, the end of verse 5, he writes, and renewing of the Holy Ghost. This renewing is an effect of regeneration. When the Holy Spirit grants to us the new birth itself. After we are born from above... A new life that is renewed by the Holy Spirit begins to be lived out by the believer. And this is one of the reasons why we are called children of God or sons of God in Scripture. You know, it's interesting when you look into Scripture and you find the phrase sons of God is used at times for different groups. For example, if you look in Luke chapter 3 verse 38 at the genealogy of Jesus Christ that is given from Jesus all the way back to Adam, you see in verse 38, it speaks of so-and-so, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, and then he says, which was the son of God. So Adam is called there son of God. The reason why is because he was created directly by God without any human means whatsoever, and so that's why that phrase there could be used of him. Also in Job chapter 1 and verse 6, and in chapter 2 and verse 1 of Job, we read about the sons of God in reference to angels who are also direct creations of God. If you remember, angels do not marry. Angels do not reproduce. They were direct creations without any other means. And so for that reason, they can also be called sons of God. But the phrases sons of God and children of God are also used of believers in both the Old and New Testaments because... Of the fact that we received a spiritual birth that was a miracle of grace brought about completely by the work of God without any means whatsoever works faith anything like that this was a direct rebirth of that's why it's called in scripture being born from above and because of that birth now we can be called spiritually the sons of God or the children of God in Deuteronomy chapter 14 and verse 1 we read 
the Lord says, Ye are the children of the Lord your God. And Psalm 73 verse 15 speaks of the generation of thy children. Just some Old Testament examples of believers being referred to as the children of God. If you remember in John chapter 3, Nicodemus asked Jesus, How can these things be concerning the new birth? And Jesus rebukes him and says, Are you the master in Israel and you do not know these things? You don't understand that a spiritual birth is essential in order to enter God's kingdom. That is why Jesus could say, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So even those yet who are under the old covenant had to be regenerated in order to believe. If they did believe, it is because they had been regenerated by God's Spirit. And of course, there is a sense in which every single person in the world can be referred to as God's offspring, because all of us were created by God. Paul says that in Acts chapter 17, verse 28. But when it comes to being a spiritual child of God, being in God's spiritual family, that is the case only for those who have been born again. Those who have not been regenerated are referred to in Scripture as the children of Satan. If you remember John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, we read there of sons of God... They are the ones who received Christ and believed on his name and who were, it says, born of God. That is, born again from above. Because we were born of God, because we've experienced the washing of regeneration, now we are adopted into God's spiritual family and we can be called sons of God. So I say all this to bring us right back here to Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Those who experience the new birth, this washing of regeneration, are also renewed by the Holy Spirit. Where there is one grace, the other grace will appear also. If you've been regenerated, you will also be renewed by the Spirit. The prophet Ezekiel writes basically concerning the same thing, and we looked at that a little bit last time. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27, we see both graces there, regeneration and renewal of the Spirit. You can stay in Titus, but if you want to, you can again look back there at Ezekiel 36 just to see how both regeneration and renewal are there as Ezekiel writes about promises concerning the new covenant that was to come, where every member now would be a regenerated individual. And first of all, I'm going to read verse 25, where the Lord says, Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. We talked about how that there is the spiritual cleansing. That is why Jesus could say that we must be born of water and the Spirit. That spiritual rebirth involves a spiritual cleansing, and that is why it could be called washing, the washing of regeneration. We're talking here about a spiritual cleansing. Then verse 26, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. So there is the heart transformation, where God, by a miracle of grace, transforms the very core of our being, and now we will no longer desire what is evil, we will rather desire that which is good, and according to God's law. But now look at verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you... To walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. You notice there, verse 27, that there is the renewal of the Spirit, promised to every New Covenant believer. So God makes alive, 
He makes the new man. He gives him a new heart that's formed in his soul. And then he comes in to actually indwell the new creature, influencing him on a daily basis, bringing about newness of life. You remember that Jesus told his disciples that the spirit of truth would abide with them forever. He said he dwells with you. But then he also said, and shall be in you, John 14, 17. That there is the renewal of the spirit and the indwelling of the spirit that Ezekiel prophesied about. Because of this renewing of the Holy Spirit, our inward man is, as Paul writes to the Corinthians, renewed day by day. Our view of everything around us is transformed. Our worldview is transformed. Our mindset is transformed after this regeneration and renewal takes place. And as we then live and walk out our Christian life, Paul, remember he writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he writes about this, we are transformed by the renewing of the mind. Because before, we were enslaved to our own sinful desires. We believed lies. We believed we held to a false worldview system, but now after we're regenerated and we learn the word of God, we're transformed day by day by day as we began to see things for the way that they really are. Our beliefs and actions then conform to God's will as it is revealed in the written word. Not just, you know, some will out here somewhere that we have to try to find. Rather, it's that which is contained already in the written word. This occurs as the third person of the Trinity continues to change and transform us so that we are conformed into Christ's image. Just as those who have experienced the new birth are referred to in Scripture as sons of God, we find that all of these spiritual children are renewed by the Spirit. This is the inevitable result in the grace that we receive at salvation. Think again of Paul's words in Romans 8.14. Here's what he wrote. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So you see that again. Those who have experienced the rebirth, who are now sons of God, it is inevitable that they will be led by the Spirit of God because that renewal has taken place. Every person who has experienced this supernatural miracle of regeneration, who has been brought out of spiritual death, into spiritual life, will be led by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables us then with the ability to obey the Word of God regarding walking in righteousness and denying the sinful desires that we still carry in our fallen nature that we will have until we finally reach glorification. That is why it is important for us now to heed Paul's words in Galatians 5.16. Walk in the Spirit, Paul says. Why? Then you will not fulfill the desires or the lusts of the flesh. As we submit ourselves to the Spirit's control and obey the command of Scripture, we'll no longer be slaves to our minds, our wills, and emotions, which have not yet been completely redeemed. You see, prior to regeneration and renewing, we were slaves to that sinful nature. We were hostile toward God, unable to please God or submit to his law. That's why Paul can write in Romans 8, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. And we cannot subject ourselves to the law of God. It is absolutely impossible. You see, our will at that time is what theologians often refer to as a creaturely will. 
the will is bound to the desires of the fallen nature. And so when two different choices are presented to it, it's always going to choose ultimately what it desires. Right. And it's always going to choose that which is evil until that renewing takes place and we're set free from that slavery to the sinful nature. By the work of the Spirit in us, we are now no longer slaves, and now it is possible for us to have the victory over the flesh that we could not have before in an unregenerate condition. So, now that we've been regenerated, and now that we've been renewed by the Spirit, we must also remember it does not mean that there is not a spiritual battle. It does not mean that the Christian doesn't sin. It does not mean that the Christian can't even fall into heinous sin and remain there for a time. There is that battle that goes on. As Paul writes in Galatians 5, the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. They are contrary one to another so that you cannot do the things that you would. So there is that battle. Because of the flesh, we still often act and think in sinful ways, even as Christians. Now, when I'm talking there about the flesh, I'm not talking about you know, your, your physical body. We're not Gnostics here. We're talking about the fallen nature that still we retain. Although we've been given a new nature, we still dwell in an unredeemed flesh. And because of that, we will still battle against sin. Scripture also does not guarantee that just because we've been regenerated and renewed by the Spirit that we will ever fully grasp the Bible in this life or understand everything in God's Word completely or have unity with believers on every single subject. And the reason for that is because we yet see through a glass darkly. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. The perfect has not yet come. We still see through a glass darkly and we fight so many things of our flesh because of that, and even it can link back for years and years, different influences that we had, we just don't see things in the Word in a way that we should. That will continue for every single one of us until we reach glorification. But before being renewed by the Spirit, we could not even understand the things of the Spirit. So there's been a change. Remember, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him. He cannot know them. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. Now, after regeneration and renewal has taken place, we can understand what we need to in the Word. We can understand what we are to believe in order to be saved and in order to follow the principles and laws of Scripture faithfully. Paul writes in Ephesians 1.18, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that ye may know the hope of his calling. So, we have regeneration and renewal. Our minds are open to the truth of God's word. And as we walk with Christ, we're enlightened day by day. And it is quite an amazing experience. If any of you have experienced regeneration, you know, well, obviously, what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Uh, some days, the lights just come on. You see something in the word. And for years, you may have been a Christian, and you've never even seen it before. It can be a theological truth. It can be a practical way that you're supposed to live. And you were enlightened, but throughout those years before that, you just maybe didn't see it because, again, we still battle the fallen nature. Colossians 1.9, Paul writes, that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So that was Paul's goal, his desire for the believers at the Church of Colossae, that you will continue growth in these things. And that is now possible because of regeneration and 
renewal. Listen to what Paul also writes about in Romans chapter 8, just giving a little summary here. In chapter 4 of that chapter, he tells the believers, walk after the Spirit. That is, manifest the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. Verse 6 of that chapter, he tells the believers that we are to be spiritually minded. Verse 9, he talks about how the Spirit of God indwells in us. And then verse 13, he says, by the Spirit, mortify the sinful tendencies of our fallen desires. And then finally, verse 16, he says, The Spirit confirms to us the validity of our salvation by producing godly fruit. So you see all these works of the Spirit in the lives of the believers. Why is that the case? It goes right back here to Titus 3.5. The washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Ghost. When that takes place, all of these different graces take place as well. So, moving on then to verse number 6, after he writes of the renewal of the Holy Ghost, he then says concerning it, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So notice here, the communicating of the Holy Spirit, the granting of gifts and graces, have been given in great measure. He says they've been poured out upon you abundantly. Abundantly. And of course, this would be even more so than under the former covenant. And that's why it's, it's amazing here to read how they've been poured out abundantly, because while the old covenant believers had the work of the Spirit, it, it's been poured out even more abundantly upon the new covenant believers now. Joel prophesied of this in Joel chapter 2 and verse 28. Familiar passage, if you remember God foretold there. He says, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. That began to be fulfilled in Acts chapter number 2. As Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, he quotes that portion of Joel, and he says that what was going on there at Pentecost is exactly what Joel foretold would take place. But not only was the Spirit going to be poured out upon the Jews, Joel said all flesh, that also included the Gentiles. When you go to Acts chapter 10, you see that taking place. What did Peter say? He says that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit. There it is, the fulfillment of Joel, just continuing to take place. Joel, I think if you study that, you'll see that it has begun to be fulfilled starting in Acts. There is yet further fulfillment yet to be. But nevertheless, that began there at that time. Spirit was poured out on the Jews and the Gentiles, and it was an abundant an abundant outpouring. The renewing of the Spirit would then bring about illumination. That's the ability to understand the Word. Sanctification, growth in Christ-likeness, spiritual gifts by which to minister, and empowering for service. The grace given by the Spirit for our walk and service as believers then could never be exhausted because it would be poured out so abundantly. But then notice, this was shed on us, look at the verse there, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's really important. The Spirit was poured out through the merits of Christ. There's a link here. It is through Christ that we are made partakers of the Spirit. It is only the members of Christ's body, that is the church, that the Spirit is bestowed upon. 
The Spirit is given. Every supply of grace is granted to us at salvation, and it comes from God the Father, because if you look at verse 6, He, in the context, God the Father, shed, us, shed it on us abundantly through Jesus Christ. So it comes from the Father through Christ. Another way to say it is that the Father begins the work, the Son manages the work, and the Spirit then perfects the work. It could also be put this way, the Father himself ordains, the Son purchases, and then the Spirit applies that redemption. So it is a complete work of every member of the Godhead. 2 Corinthians 5.18, And all things are of God, Paul writes, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. So again, this is through Christ that the reconciliation comes. Every grace that we receive in salvation comes by or through Jesus Christ. Listen also to Romans 5.11. We also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the atonement. So in other words, we exalt now in God. We joy in Him through His Son because it's through His work that two warring parties have now been brought together in peace. That's the atonement. All of this... Every grace that we receive in salvation, we receive through the work that Christ did. See, each member of the Trinity has a particular role that he fulfills in our salvation. The Father ordains, the Son does the work as far as purchasing us and redeeming us, and then the Spirit perfects that work and applies that salvation to us. Now, if you would, look at verse number 7. So, it's been poured abundantly through Christ. Verse 7, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Look at the first part of the verse to begin with. That being justified by his grace. Now Paul begins to write about another very important aspect of our salvation. And that is justification. We talked a little bit about this last time, that there are distinctions in Scripture made between regeneration and justification. Two very important aspects of our salvation, but there are very important differences as well between them. Let me just give you some examples. Regeneration, as I mentioned last time, is salvation from sin's pleasure. Whereby it becomes now loathsome to us. What we once enjoyed now has become abominable to us. And this aspect of our salvation is the cure of all the vices that we read about in verse 3 earlier in the chapter. If you remember in that verse, it talks about serving diverse lusts and pleasures, hating one another, living in envy and foolishness. Regeneration is the cure to that all. Whereas justification is different. Justification is salvation from sin's penalty. It is a legal declaration made by God himself, whereby the sinner is declared as righteous. God justifies the believer through faith by the righteousness of his son. And he can do this because he willed not to impute our sins to ourselves, right. but rather to the Lord Jesus Christ, who was our head and our representative. 
This, there's some doctrines here that are linked together. If you remember, Adam was our head. He was, he was our federal head, our representative in the garden. That's why when he fell, we all fell in Adam. Now Christ is the head of his people. He's our representative. So as our sin is imputed to him on the cross, and he pays the penalty for that, we then can receive his righteousness because he is our representative. So we see here, if you remember 2 Corinthians 5, 21, to be sin for us, the Father made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So as you look at this, you again see the wisdom of God in Scripture. This is why, you see, it is so important to take all of Scripture together. Uh, if it is asked at times, I'm going to get off the subject here for a moment, but if it is asked at times, what is important in a local church? Uh, if you would not attend a local church, what would be some reasons for that? Well, some of them would be theological error, and another one I would say would be compromise to the spirit of the age in the present time that we are living. And when you think about how so many have compromised the way the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters, and they substituted in with theistic evolution and all kinds of stuff, if you deny a biblical historical Adam, you're going to deny the doctrine of original sin and how Adam stood as our representative... And that's linked with Christ being our representative then to save us. You see, so it's so important to hold to all of these biblical truths. But now, because Christ was our representative, the believer is seen as having the perfect righteousness of Christ. Not in our day-to-day -day walk. Not in our day-to-day -day walk. Otherwise, there would be no reason for the Father to have to chasten us at times, right? Right. There would be no reason for us to have to confess our sins and receive cleansing, as John writes about in 1 John 1, 9. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So we're not seen as perfectly righteous in our day-to-day -day walk, but in our legal standing before God the Father. The believer has the perfect righteousness of Christ credited to his account concerning that legal standing. And he will no longer have to bear the just punishment for his sins because they were paid for at the cross. And the believer is seen as having lived Christ's perfect life. That's what we receive at justification. Now, some other important differences. Regeneration is a work that God does within us in which he grants spiritual life to the spiritually dead sinner and transforms the very core of our being. That's regeneration. Justification is not a work done within us. No. It does not change our natures. But it is simply a declaration made concerning us. Yeah. Not guilty. Yeah. Righteous. Right. It's a declaration, a legal declaration. Also some important differences. Regeneration precedes faith. Justification comes through faith. And I used this analogy last time of setting up targets and you shoot a bullet through it, it happens so quickly, you can't see all the different targets that goes through order, or it seems as if it all happens at the same time. But if you had some kind of you know, high-tech camera, you could see the bullet going through one first, and then the other, and then the other. It's like that in salvation. Conversion can happen so quickly that we don't understand the order that is occurring here in this great work. But regeneration precedes faith. Justification comes through faith. Never in Scripture are we told that we are regenerated or born again through or by our faith. 
Rather, when Nicodemus asked Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? And when he's asking him about how can this be concerning being born again, Jesus does not say repent and believe. Rather, he compares it to the wind. Remember, you don't see the wind, but you see the effects, and you can't control it. It's not something that you can control. Never do you see in Scripture, or never in Scripture are you told, repent and believe, and then you'll be born again. That's kind of a tradition amongst you know, many Christians, but it's actually not there in Scripture. Rather, we are passive recipients of this grace. And regeneration enables us to have faith. Through such faith, then we are declared as righteous. Justification, then, brethren, is by faith alone. Without works completely. And the reason for that is faith is the only attitude that we can exercise by which we are completely relying on another. In this case, completely relying on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why we can be justified through that faith. Notice also here in the verse, Paul writes that we are justified by his grace. That is, by God's unmerited favor. So if it is by works, it cannot, excuse me, if it is by grace, it cannot be by works in any way, shape, or form. We talked about that. Romans 11, verse 6, regarding salvation, Paul said, If it is by grace, it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace, right? If you combine, if you're saved, if you're justified by grace and by merits mixed together, as some teach, then the grace that you're claiming that we receive isn't grace at all. Because grace is unmerited favor. You can't mix them together. Paul also writes in Romans 3.24, he says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So again, it comes through the merits of Christ, but it's free and it is all of God's unmerited favor, no works involved whatsoever. So it is by grace alone. Also then, it is through faith alone. Romans 3.28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. You see, the law can't save anybody. God did not give his law for that purpose. The law shows us our sinfulness, and it shows us our need for a Savior, and it shows us that we can't be saved by any of our merits because we've already failed. Rather, we are saved through the work of another. That is Christ, and that is why it comes only through faith. So we're justified by grace through faith, apart from works, and apart from the law. Then if you'll notice, this justification occurs, the reason, he says here in this verse, the second and last part of it, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So justification takes place so that we will be heirs according to this hope of eternal life. Through justification, we are made heirs, and that's so important because eternal life is, according to Scripture, an inheritance. It is an inheritance. This inheritance is our hope or expectation of what has already been, been guaranteed to us through our justification. So when we talk about this hope, we're not saying that the Christian is just thinking, I, I am really hoping that I will reach heaven. Uh, I don't know for sure if I am or not. It's hope, that's not the kind of hope that Scripture is talking about. The hope is an anticipation 
of what has already been guaranteed. Amen. As you've been regenerated, as you've been justified, now you are an heir awaiting the full possession of the inheritance. And it's important for us to have that expectation because as we dwell in the, fa the fallen world still, we can lose sight of that. Rather, this is to be our constant anticipation. We don't yet enjoy the full aspects of eternal life, but this hope causes us to look forward to the inheritance. Not as something that we must purchase, but as something that has already been given as a free gift. So everyone in here that's a believer, currently, this day, you are anticipating your inheritance. Something that has already been promised to you. Now, a couple important points about this biblical truth concerning inheritance of eternal life. This again comes through the mediator. It comes through Christ who redeemed us and gave us the privilege of being called sons of God through faith in him. Remember that familiar verse, John 1.12. As many as received him, to them gave he the power, you could also translate that, to them he gave the right to become the sons of God even to them that believe on his name. So believers are sons of God, children of God, and as the children, they await that guaranteed inheritance that the Father will give them. Just as an heir whose father has not yet passed on the inheritance, he waits for that. In the same way, God's spiritual children await the eternal life inheritance, the full, the full aspects of that life that the Father will eventually give them. Um, Stay in Titus again, but look at 1 Peter chapter 1, because Peter writes here about the same thing. And we'll look first of all at verse number 3. 1 Peter chapter 1. Again, concerning inheritance. In verse 3, he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again, unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So notice something. This goes back to what we saw last time in Titus. Do you remember in Titus chapter 5, we saw, or chapter 3 verse 5, we saw that it is by God's mercy that we received the washing of regeneration. Peter says here the same thing. Because of God's abundant mercy, he hath begotten us again. There's some old King James English, begotten us again. You could translate that as cause us to be born again, as one translation that I know of does. So, God in his mercy brought about the new birth. And then, because through the new birth we're now children of God, we have this lively hope that we await, that we will receive because of the work of Christ, by his resurrection. You see that? Then look at verse number 4. To an inheritance, that's the hope, incorruptible and undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. So notice, it's reserved there. It's a guarantee. You're waiting yet for that promise. The guaranteed inheritance given to those who have been born again. So it is all right there. All those aspects that we have in Titus, you have them right here also in 1 Peter chapter 1. Now, you don't have to turn there, but I'll also bring out some truths from Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. There we read, The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
the children of God, those who have been born again, they have the renewal of the Spirit, and that work of the Spirit grants them that assurance that they are really saved. And if children, Paul writes, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So there again, because we're children, we're going to be heirs of that full inheritance of eternal life. Then he writes, if so, be so that you suffer with him, that you also may be glorified together. That glorification, that's when we receive that full inheritance. So, by the Father's adopting grace, he puts us among his children, and we await the inheritance. Now, let's talk about a few more mysteries of the word concerning this subject of inheritance. Inheritance... Because of our adoption as children of God, because we become God's children through the new birth and through faith, we must remember this is all through Christ, who is the mediator of this work. But not only this, this grace all lies in the eternal predestination in Christ. Okay, that's important there. In Christ. Stay in Titus. Go over to Ephesians chapter 1 for a moment. Ephesians chapter 1. And again, we're focusing here on our inheritance. In Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to read verses 3 through 5. And just look here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So notice, the blessings of salvation are granted us by Christ, and we receive them because Christ is the mediator of his people. That's what scripture means when it talks about the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. That is, we receive them because of the work of Christ, our mediator. Now, look at verse 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. So that is chosen before creation, in eternity past, ultimately, what? To reach glorification, salvation from the presence of sin in a resurrected body. So in other words, chosen before the foundation of the world, what? To eventually end up to being holy and blameless before him. When does that take place? Glorification. So before the foundation of the world, all the way to when we receive the full inheritance. Then verse 5. Actually, in this translation, I think that it's, it's probably better to link the last two words, in love, with verse 5. In love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So notice now, our adoption as children of God, through Christ the mediator, occurs ultimately because God set his love on them in eternity past. It says, in love, he predestined us, that we would receive the grace of adoption. You see, it's all there. And notice, that was not based upon our goodness, our works, or any foreseen faith. Rather, look at the verse. It was according to the good pleasure of his will. That's the reason for it, ultimately, and nothing else. And then verse 6, the reason to the praise of the glory of his grace. So, God the Father predetermined to redeem a particular people for himself in love, 
to display his amazing grace and receive the glory that he deserved. And this adoption gives us the expectation of that inheritance that the Father determined that he would receive. Look at verse 11. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his will. So even our inheritance, which we are currently anticipating, as the sons of God was predestined by God. This predestination occurred before the world began, and it is a part of the all things that he is working after the counsel of his own will, which this verse talks about. So ultimately, why salvation? Why adoption? Why an inheritance? We talking about all these amazing graces that we receive at salvation. We talk about the work that God does to us in time. But then, brethren, if you pull back the curtain, so to speak, and God in his word reveals to us more of his glorious plan, you see, the ultimate reason for all of these graces is God's sovereign, eternal predestination in Christ. That is, he predetermined that we would receive these graces through the merits and the work of his Son. That is why, on the day of judgment, in Matthew 25, 34, Jesus will say to his people, Come ye, blessed of my Father, now listen, inherit, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There we will receive the inheritance. But that was an inheritance that was planned simply after we believed. It was inheritance that was planned all the way back before the creation even was. So again, we see how this is all linked together. Currently, we do have a kind of possession of eternal life now. Jesus says that in John 17, 3, right? Mm -hmm. We have eternal life. As we grow though in faith, our expectation grows stronger. And when we receive it, we will experience eternal life to the fullest. Because we are heirs, as Titus, as it says here in Titus verse 7, we are heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And as we end, let's just say a few practical things concerning this passage. There's so many things, obviously, we could say, but we'll just mention two of them. Notice the eternal life that the believer possesses now, as Jesus said, is to know God and his son, Jesus Christ. He says that. Again, John 17, 3. This is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ in your sin. This is so important. The evidence of being a false convert on the day of judgment, we read in Matthew 7, is Jesus will say, I never knew you. That is what he will say. Regardless of any knowledge that we had, regardless of any ministry work that we did, regardless of any miracles that we worked, because the people there will say, we did all these miracles, all these wonderful works, Jesus will say, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, you worker of iniquity. Basically meaning you never lived as if I gave you a law to obey. So Jesus will say, I never knew you. So a person can have all this knowledge, all this work, all these things, but if it stops there, and it does not lead to knowing God and his son Jesus Christ, it's not real eternal life. Adam and Eve in the garden, if you remember, they had fellowship with God. It wasn't the things of the garden that was Adam's greatest joy. It was God himself that was his greatest joy. 
After the fall, salvation in Christ restores us to that fellowship with God that we were created for, and that it is that we are designed to be fully fulfilled by as his creatures. Our inheritance that we await for then is that eternal life which we will fully possess. And ultimately, the inheritance that we will fully possess is God himself. That is one thing I really enjoy about the Puritans, is they made it clear the word itself is not an end. The word is a means to an end. And that end is God himself. In Genesis 15, verse 1, God says to Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Ultimately, Abraham's great reward was God himself. Moses' desire in Exodus 33, ultimately his desire, he asks God, show me your glory. So Moses understood it. He got it. Ultimately, God was his reward. Psalm 73, verses 25 through 28, just some of the things that are said there. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none on earth that I desire beside thee. God is my portion. It is good for me to draw near to God. And so we always must ask ourselves this question. Do I love God? Of course, our love falls so far short because we had struggled with sin. But remember, at the same time, the psalmist could say, I love you, Lord. And Paul could write that he is cursed who does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Yeah. So even yet in our weakness, we have to ask, do I love God? Do I want God? Is he my ultimate desire above all else? We are not sinless. Trials and struggles, yes, they will come. But the true believer continues in the faith ultimately because he loves and wants God. Like David, he is a man after God's own heart. Or if you're a woman, a woman after God's own heart. This is our ultimate joy as heirs. And you think about this, this is so important as a person examines themselves. I can't help but to think of a tragic example that goes against this. The example of a man by the name of Dan Barker. Many of you probably know who he is. He is the founder of the Freedom From Religion Foundation, and they have all kinds of lawsuits all the time against Christians. They are atheists that want Christianity completely eradicated from the land. Well, if you know anything about Dan Barker, you'll know that he was a pastor and a preacher for almost two decades, for about 20 years. Raised in a professing Christian home by Christian parents, had Christian siblings, married a Christian woman, had children of his own, a pastor for almost 20 years, Later, denies the faith, rejects Jesus Christ. And you know what happened? His wife followed him. His children followed him. His parents followed him. I know at least one of his brothers followed him. And one of the things his mother said was, Danny is right. And you think about that. You know all that reveals, brethren? It reveals that none of them were truly Christians to begin with. After all those decades, after all those years, all that knowledge of the Bible, all that ministry, none of them were actually regenerated people. You see, they had all those things, but they really did not know God or His Son, Jesus Christ. Because if they would have, they would have remained in the faith. Yep. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what if one of my siblings would turn away from the faith? What if my parents would turn away from the faith? What if one of the elders in this church would turn away from the faith? You know what that would mean? It would mean we did all that preaching and we were never actually genuinely converted. That's exactly what it would mean. A lot of people won't teach that, but it is the absolute truth. So we have to ask ourselves, who is most important to us? Yep. 
our spouse, our parents, our siblings, our close friends. What happens if they turn away from the Lord? You see, you begin to understand what Scripture means when Jesus says that he who follows after me, he must love him more than what? Father, mother, wife, children, lands. And even if any of them turn away from Christ and try to keep us from following Christ, we understand how the love that we have for those people, those that are close to us, the closest of human relationships, must seem like hatred compared to the love that we have for the Lord Jesus Christ. He that follows after me must be willing to hate father, mother, wife, children, and so forth. That is, our love for Christ is to excel all of that by far. And if we truly have eternal life, if we truly are heirs, God himself will be our exceeding great reward above any person and above anything. As the hymn says, Thou mine inheritance now and always so the hymn writer understood it so it's very important to understand that concerning eternal life second and last practical point because of justification by grace we are made heirs and because we are declared righteous by grace it is not based on our own righteousness but the righteousness of another and I say that to say this brethren Don't ever fall into the trap of thinking that you can be saved by your own works of righteousness. It is absolutely impossible. All of us instead need an alien righteousness, a perfect righteousness that is not our own. Why did Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me? The reason is because there was no one on this earth who ever lived a perfect sinless life and who ever could give a perfect righteousness to us by which we would be saved. Nobody. It doesn't matter who. Buddha, Mahatma Gandhi, Muhammad, none of them lived a perfect righteous life. None of them could be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Only Christ could be because as the sinless God-man, He could be the perfect payment. He could bear our sins and take the punishment. That through faith in Him, then we would receive a perfect righteousness. How is it that Jesus can be the only way? That's why. That's why Jesus is the only way. Amen. There's no other way. And that is why any gospel, any purported gospel that mixes grace, faith, and works is not a gospel at all. You must rely on Christ alone for salvation. Amen. I had someone ask me once, if this is true, that only Christians go to heaven, what about someone like Gandhi? Well, ask, take Gandhi through the Ten Commandments. Did Gandhi ever lie? Did Gandhi ever steal? Did Gandhi ever lust? Did Gandhi ever hate? Just like Gandhi and anyone, we have sinned thousands and thousands and thousands of times. There's no way we could stand before a holy God in our own righteousness. It's impossible. So we need... The perfect righteousness of Christ himself. Because he was the sinless, spotless lamb who bore the sins of many on the cross and died in their place so we could receive his imputed righteousness to our account. If anyone was religious and knowledgeable of scripture and committed to his religion, it was Paul before his conversion. As touching the law, he said a Pharisee, but now it was his desire, he said in Philippians 3, To be found in Christ, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, 
but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. As we come to the table this morning, or this afternoon now, we're reminded then, brethren, that our sin debt has been paid. That's what the table reminds us of, the broken body, the shed blood. Our sin debt has been paid, and through trust in the Savior, we have been justified in God's sight. We then remember that this was because of Christ's work, not our own. The table reminds us of Christ's work, nothing that we do. Acts 13.39 gives us great assurance, brethren, as we come to the table. It says, By him, that is Jesus, all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Renewing of the Holy Spirit, being justified, heirs of eternal life, it all comes because of the work of Christ. So to him be the glory. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the glorious truths in your word. And as we remember, even from the Bible study this morning, and as we're gathered together now, we need to be guided by your word of truth. If our ways of thinking are not according to the word, they will always be wrong. Whenever we want to do what is right in our own eyes, we'll always go a wrong direction. We know that is why we must study this word, know this word, so we will believe what is right and do what is right. And even concerning these important matters of the gospel, salvation, your work, Lord, we thank you that you have given to us the truths of these matters in the word. Have your perfect work in us now, we pray, through this time that we have had in the scriptures. May you be glorified, and may Christ be glorified, because we've received your grace, we know, based upon the graces of salvation because of his atoning, sacrificial work. We pray in his name.